Throughout this year on Louisiana Considered, we've strived to bring you stories that are diverse, interesting, thoughtful, and celebrate the uniqueness of our state. So if you like our show, and if you're feeling in the holiday spirit, we ask that you show us some support so we can keep bringing you more of the stories that you like to listen to. You can make a donation on wwno.org donate or wrkf.org donate. Thanks. Now, here's the show. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. On today's program, we are looking back at some of our favorite stories from the past year. For that, I'm joined by Louisiana Considered Managing Producer Alana Schreiber. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Adam. So I'm wondering, what have some of your favorite stories been from the past year? One that really sticks out to me is a conversation we had with John Ashe. He's from Assumption Parish, and in 2008, his father died in a car crash involving multiple vehicles, a crash which police attributed to low visibility caused by smoke from field burning. For over 200 years in the U.S., sugar cane and rice field burning has been a tool that farmers use in the pre-harvest season to remove the tops of the plants, but that doesn't mean that burning massive fields all at one time can't cause harm. That's right. So remind me what exactly John did after his father died. Well, he took action. He started the organization Citizens Against Agricultural Field Burning. It's a nonprofit that advocates for field burning alternatives. He found a way to channel his grief into a movement and one that he hopes will save lives. That sounds really impactful. What else do you remember from this conversation? What stuck out to you? First of all, for some reason, I didn't realize that burning fields was still being used as an economical way to clear those tops of the plants, to clear debris from the crop, despite the negative effects of the pollutants in the air that that causes. And it honestly didn't occur to me that burning fields would put smoke close to the ground over adjacent roads, affecting people who might drive their vehicles nearby or live nearby, people breathing that air. The smoke doesn't just rise and disperse into the atmosphere. It'll often stick close to the ground. And I learned that's not good just for transportation, but also for air quality and respiratory health. And why do you want to revisit this conversation now? Well, we spoke to John in March. And since then, our part of the state has experienced a completely unrelated kind of smoke-related visibility problem for travelers, that super fog we've been hearing about, a term we became familiar with, in this case caused by wildfire smoke. In late October, New Orleans was blanketed with a super fog that led to a deadly crash on Interstate 55. That crash was due to a combination of marsh fire smoke combined with the regular kind of fog from moisture in the air. It wasn't from intentional field burning, but I think it reminded a lot of people of just how dangerous smoky air can be. That's right. And not to mention all the summer and fall fires that even led to statewide burn bans. So I think a lot more people these days are probably thinking about the larger impact of fires and smoke. That's right. And with that, I think it's time we give this conversation a second listen. John O'Shea, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Adam. Could you start by telling us a little bit about how you got involved in this? How was your life impacted by field burning? So my journey, if you will, started um, on the morning of November 1st, 2008. Um, my father, John, Johnny Ashe Sr., 
was on his way to play golf with his friends. Uh, it was around 7.30 in the morning, and he was traveling on the highway. Uh, smoke from a nearby sugarcane field that was burning into the night and into the morning started blowing across the road. Uh, my dad was involved in a seven-car pileup. Um, he was the sixth vehicle, and he was smashed between an 18-wheeler and a dump truck. Um, what started this journey was an article I read in early December about the death of an officer in Abbeville, uh, in Vermillion Parish, Aaron LaPointe. Um, he was killed in almost exactly the same way, except it was a rice field. Um, and at that point, um, I decided that, you know, enough was enough. I had seen, uh, you know, enough people die, um, and enough people affected by this. And, you know, I figured it was time for me to get involved and, and try to do something about it. As you mentioned, this isn't something that happened just to you. It's a widespread issue. What were the initial goals that you hoped to accomplish with this, with this organization? So the initial goal when we started was to try to find uh, a representative or senator, anyone who would be willing to introduce some sort of bill or resolution. And, and our vision from the beginning, I, I sat down and I thought about this a lot, you know, how do we get farmers to stop burning? Um, and what I came up with, and I guess for lack of a better term, the path of least resistance was to try to work with the farming industry and come up with cost-efficient or cost-beneficial alternatives to burning sugarcane versus any sort of bill trying to force a burn ban without any alternatives in place. Um, we're not your traditional environmental justice group. It's not what this is about. Um, our main focus is on immediate death and the, all the you know health ailments associated with burning like respiratory issues that are aggravated by the burning, like asthma, bronchitis, COPD, cancer, kidney disease, cardiac disease. And the byproduct, you know, if we are successful in getting alternatives, is beneficial to the environment. And before we get too far along, many of our listeners are probably urban dwellers who may not have a significant connection to agriculture or an understanding of just how bad the smoke is when you do field burning and what that effect is. Can you illustrate that a little bit more for me? How bad is it, for instance, when the smoke encroaches on a road or somebody's home? When you look at the effects of, of burning, so uh, there was a study. Uh, they said that you would have to be at least 26 miles away to not be affected at all by smoke soot or ash. Uh, so your your nearer people are the ones who with asthma, bronchitis that are gonna suffer the most as far as health ailments go. But the further out you go, you are affected by soot and ash all over your vehicles, your home. So even though you may not be, you know, directly next to a sugar cane or a rice field, everyone is affected by it. You know, it, it affects poor communities, rich communities. We have, sugar, especially sugarcane, we have sugarcane everywhere it's around us. Uh, what's most concerning, having it everywhere around us means it's around our schools, our hospitals, our nursing homes, you know, our, our retirement homes. My own grandmother, who has asthma, bronchitis, and COPD, they burned sugarcane 100 feet away from her home. 
We're speaking with John O'Shea, head of the nonprofit Citizens Against Agricultural Field Burning. As you mentioned, of course, you're not against agriculture, against there being rice fields and cane fields to start with. So there are some alternatives. Can you tell us about some of the alternatives to field burning and what it might take to go in that direction? Yeah, you know, some of the, there's a couple of companies, some of the things that they're doing. Um, there's a company called Drax. They are a biomass, uh, bioenergy company um, that uses agricultural wastes and different, you know, other wastes to produce bioenergy. You have biofuels, you have uh, American Biocarbon in White Castle working in conjunction with Cora Texas Sugar Mill and Dr. Isabel Lima on, uh, it's called Biochar Technology. You know, the, those, those are just a few cattle feed, uh, tree-free paper products. Then we believe that there's, it's not going to be one alternative that, you know, plays the ball. There's going to have to be multiple alternatives that farmers are using. John, one of the things you've done is you've met with the Louisiana Department of Agriculture and Forestry Commissioner Mike Strain. Can you tell me about that meeting and what you're working on together? Yes, I I, uh, I thought it was a great meeting. Um, I discussed what happened to my father, and we discussed the the resolution that we had proposed. You know, to form a task force. The objectives of the task force would be to study and evaluate all the issues with agricultural burning, the health impact, you know, environmental impact. And most importantly to me is lay out all the alternatives to burning, you know, agricultural field and try to come up with the most cost efficient, cost beneficial alternatives and make recommendations ahead of the 2024 legislative session. Um, you're working with your local representative on that. Where do you see this going? Well, it depends. Um, so there, there's one issue that, that we're going to look into as well. It, it, the Louisiana has what's called the Louisiana Smoke Management Program. This is really supposed to be stringent, strict guidelines on when farmers can burn, what wind condition, you know, the issue with that program is that it is a voluntary program, which to me, I, I, I don't understand that, to be honest, but I have no idea how something like that can be a voluntary program. That's one of the things we're going to look at on this task force, making that program mandatory. We've been speaking with John O'Shea, joining us from Labadeeville, head of the nonprofit Citizens Against Agricultural Field Burning. Thank you, John, for joining us today. All right, Adam. And from WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. On today's program, we're looking back at some of our favorite stories from the past year. For that, I'm joined by Louisiana Considered Managing Producer Alana Schreiber. Hey, Adam. So what other stories have really stuck out to you from the past year? One conversation that was really meaningful was with Maxine Crump. She was the first black woman to live on LSU's campus. She's founder and president CEO of Dialogue on Race, an organization in Baton Rouge with a mission to eliminate racism through education and dialogue. Wow. Well, what did you learn about that organization? I learned just how much care is taken in facilitating the conversations that they have there. And I learned that it's not just, air quotes, social justice warriors who willingly take part in these open, honest conversations about race. 
these conversations are made so that they're useful to people from across the spectrum of social awareness, from people who want to go to people who are told they should consider it, uh, from people who acknowledge their inherent prejudices to those people who might not be so quick to admit that racism is even a thing here in the year 2023. I heard from Maxine that it takes a lot to create a safe space for people of differing backgrounds to unwrap what racism is and what one's role is in the unspoken and largely unnoticed systems of oppression that survive to this day and to which we all in some way willingly or unwillingly take part and unfortunately possibly also unknowingly contribute to the perpetuation of. I remember first learning about Maxine when I listened to LSU Library's oral history collections. She spoke about her experience as the first Black woman to live in the LSU dorms. I remember she talked about how a lot of people thought she was there simply to challenge the system, to make a statement. But she was really there because she just knew she had a right to be, and that it would be the best thing for her education. And I also remember she spoke about how the school wouldn't give her a roommate— at one point, one of her classmates and new friends actually requested to live with her, but the school didn't let it happen. So it wasn't really this step forward in integration that it may have looked like from the outside. In some ways, it seems emblematic of the work she's doing now, educating people on what real equality is, starting with having those hard conversations about racial issues. Well, with that, I think it's time we encore this conversation. Maxine, welcome to the studio. Hello, Adam. Good to be here. So hopefully I did justice to the organization's mission with that introduction there. Can you give us your introduction to what Dialogue on Race does? Sure. Dialogue on Race is an educational process for understanding race. It's a process that is structured in a series of six sessions, and it's formatted, facilitated, backed with factual material. Backed with factual material. What sort of materials and processes back the conversations, what do the conversations look like? Well, racism is a through line that started at the founding. And so we find materials that it shows that through line so that people can follow it and unpack what they think they understand about race and racism. Uh, and so we start with terms because very often when people are talking about race, some people will say, well, that's racist. Or sometimes, unfortunately, they will tell someone else, you're racist. Not a good idea to name call. But they're, they're meaning something different from each other. And so we define a set of terms and distinctions so that we will be able to have a set of terms that everyone is recognizing that this is what we mean when we say this. It's for clarity and not for telling people they must accept those definitions. But at least they'll know what we're talking about when we use it. And it gives a clarity to the conversation. So uh, we so we start with terms and then a brief history, like what happened at the founding and where we are. That session one and then session two, we look at who benefits from this and why was this system built this way? That topic is called understanding white privilege. And then the third session looks at, well, how, do, how has that been kept in place so long? So we look at that it was empowered two institutions to give all institutions during the segregation era of 100 years to practice denying and setting up barriers to people who were not white and giving preference to those who were white. So see, we're following the through line. Then we look at uh, the movement that called it unjust and, and attempted to get the country to roll this back. People called it the civil rights movement. And that movement ended with a civil rights law. But the law didn't end racism. Uh, it just gave those who were disenfranchised a right to file a lawsuit. Institutions kept practicing 
uh, racism. And now it's still practiced because it's in the foundation of institutions and the structures. And it's not always there intentionally or directly. And then finally, people often say, well, we talk long enough, it's time to do something. So then we, we say talk is action. It's the kind of talk that makes a difference. So you organize these series of conversations with a small group of people. It's a relatively intimate group of people with a facilitator. How do you make it what you would call a safe space for people to talk about themselves and racism and, and how it affects them? Um, all the components, you know, the materials, the structure, the format, the facilitation, and the voices that people bring to the conversation, all of those components working together in small groups is an empowering way to work because in our society, decisions in large companies, no matter how large, are made by a small group of people. So we put them in that same setup, that empowered setup that goes in democracy. Too often, racism has been considered, quote, unsafe because people are talking about things that are emotionally charged. And we know that people come in with the emotionally charged conversation a lot of times and sometimes some deep beliefs they don't even know they have until they're brought out in the conversation. So that's why we structure the conversation and facilitate it, because frankly, racism is uncomfortable. It's not as the same uncomfortable to everyone, and some people have become very comfortable with it being this way because it's uh, subtle and sometimes indirect and unconscious. And people say, well, they didn't mean it. They really are a nice person and yada, yada, yada. But then the outcome is this disenfranchisement that leads the CDC to say racism is a health issue. When was it that you decided that this was your mission, that you wanted to make an organization to do this work? When I was in the media. <laughs> <laughs> and and then I had asked to serve on the, the YWCA board and the combination of what I was seeing in the media and the combination of there being an organization in this community that said elimination of racism was part of their mission. So I became curious of that. And um, so... I saw that they, too, were trying to avoid making people uncomfortable, and I thought, somehow, I don't think you can reach your mission by seeking comfort over truth and, and authenticity and accurate history. So um, I noticed that in the media, many reporters don't quite have a, a real grasp to understanding institutional racism. The narrative that says it's people not liking each other is sometimes in the unconsciousness of the way news is delivered. And so that whole status quo of how the conversation has been kind of left on the back burner and only episodes are treated like racism, whereas some of the things are almost invisible, almost considered normal. Racism has become accepted as normal in a lot of ways. So the media is in that too because we're all in the same environment with this narrative. We're speaking with Maxine Crump, founder of Dialogue on Race and Organization in Baton Rouge, that puts on programming, conversations among people about issues of race and racism. So in your programming, you point out structures and mechanisms that perpetuate racism. What are some of those? Well, they identify them. People coming identifying because we ask them after we define the terms, we ask them, so where do you see racism given the definitions that uh, we've given you? And the first thing often out of their mouths is the schools. And it's like, what are you talking about? You know, say more on that. And they will say, well, um, we have schools that are still now racially segregated, whether there's a law anymore, there's a lot of one race schools. So as we've gone, when you get into the advanced series, you find that people say, well, it's what's taught in school about race. And so much is left out that they hear in the dialogue. 
And so they say, well, I never learned this in school, but uh, this author wrote this and it seems factual to me. And so um, they, it, they start to unpack the narrative and they start to realize where the narrative is located. Are there some that people have brought up that were a surprise? Yes, um, the bridged over areas in communities. And someone brought it up and someone else said, well, how can an interstate be racist? And it's like, that's because this is someone thinking of racism as individual attitudes. It was a structure that was built during that hundred years of, of legal segregation that allowed states to make that decision. However, uh, no one raised their hand and said, I'd like to live under the interstate. So they made the choice that they would bridge over the areas throughout the country, the bridged over areas of people who are black or brown. And what we see is that that bridged over area remains and the community continued to decline under the interstate. So for them, that's racism. And that's accurate because that's a structure that remains. I've had city planners point out that the fact we create cul-de-sacs and dead-end streets and neighborhoods that have one way in and one way out by vehicle is very much a uh, system to keep certain people out of your neighborhood, to keep people who are not from your neighborhood from driving past your house. That's one of the things that would come up in, when people say they see racism in Baton Rouge. That's one of the things they name, cul-de-sacs. Mm-hmm. So the people who participate in dialogue on race, I would assume, are already the kinds of people who would come wanting to do something about racism in the community or in themselves. Is that true? Uh, what do you do for people who are not quite to that point? Oh, some of those come to dialogue, too. Those who are not to that point, they come to see, well, I'm going to see what they're talking about in there. And sometimes now that many businesses and organizations are bringing us in or sending their employees in, um, we like to watch them unpack. Now, it's up to them what they unpack. And very often they start talking and they're allowed to say exactly what they say. And they're surprised that no one challenged what they said. In other words, the facilitators don't say, oh, well, that's not quite accurate enough. And these are things that happen in dialogue where people do unpack. What kinds of racial issues do you foresee your participants encountering in their daily lives, in their professional roles? And how do you see their participation in dialogue on race changing how they interact with those issues? We're sending out a survey now to some of them who participated in 2020 and 2022 to see what they say about what's different for them. And But some of the things people have said is they feel like they have uh, language to talk now. They feel like that part of what they can do now, instead of challenging what other people say to them that they think is erroneous or incorrect or insensitive, they can say, why do you think that? Or they can say, say more about that. And they come back and they tell us with glee, it worked. <laughs> so they find a way of talking that they like. Do you think your work will ever be done? I hope so. I, I hope so. You know, some people like to keep job security, keep things going so they can have a job. No, get me out of a job. End racism. Make sure that no person encounters barriers because of their color in this country, because the founding principles is freedom and justice for all, where everyone has the right to pursue. When it's assured to everyone and no barriers and all companies say, let me make sure we have no barriers in this company that maybe we don't see, but maybe we find here. So some people say it's the future to never happen. I don't think they're right. It will happen. Maxine Crump is founder and president and CEO of Dialogue on Race, an organization in Baton Rouge with a mission to eliminate racism through education and dialogue through conversation. Maxine, thank you for being here today. It's been a pleasure, Adam. 
From WRKF and WWNO, this has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Thank you to our guests, founder of the organization Citizens Against Agricultural Field Burning, John Ashe, and founder and president CEO of Dialogue on Race, Maxine Crump. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 noon and 7 p.m. on this station. The show is available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.